Hello. We are the creators of the new DEA podcasts. Uh, my name's Kaya. I'm a resident in emergency on the Sunshine Coast. And I'm Karen. I'm a public health registrar in Canberra. And we're here to talk about DEA, which is Doctors for the Environment Australia, and the excellent things its members have been up to, so you can stay up to date without having to lift an eyelid. Uh, Each episode, we'll cover some of the latest news from DEA, and then dive into one topic per show. Today, we'll be focusing on air pollution and letting you know about the recent organisational review within DEA. Um, So the purpose of the show... Uh, and this podcast, the reason that Karen and I wanted to do it is because we wanted to keep people within DEA up to date um, about what's going on with DEA and explore some environmental issues as they come up as well. I guess it's good to preface at this point, we're not always experts on the topics we will discuss. Actually, I don't think I will ever be an expert on any topic (laughs) I discuss, Um, but we'll be talking about things that we find interesting and want to learn more about as well, and hopefully you find them interesting as well. And sometimes we'll be inviting experts onto the show to have a bit more of a chat and go into depth about different things. First off, I want to let you know about the new air pollution special interest group. Um, So I think unless you were living under a rock or you happen to be in an extremely well-sealed hospital or clinic and never went home at all this entire past summer, you'll probably know that the sexy topic of air pollution is now on top of everyone's minds. In the space of just a few months, we've seen some of the worst air pollution in Australia ever to seeing reports of air quality now being better than ever. Um, And it's an unfortunate result, but a partial benefit of COVID lockdown. Of course, air pollution has always been on top of DEA members' minds because we know that air pollution is a risk factor for acute and chronic health problems. And they're things that we deal with a lot of, like asthma, cardiovascular disease, and even some gestational outcomes. I think only time will tell what the full extent of the health impacts of the bushfire season have been, but early modelling suggests that the effects have been significant. So I think now is a better time than ever for DEA to convene an air pollution special interest group. It's going to be led by Ben Ewald, and it's for you if you're interested in how air pollution affects your health and how you can help address air pollution issues. Um, So the initial issues and areas that people can help out with are related to the new national air pollution standards and air pollution from coal mining, transport and burning. So I guess that's a good point to start talking about the next topic, which is COVID and air pollution. Uh, So there's been a lot of talk about how COVID-19 has been clearing skies, particularly on social media, and reducing air pollution through reduced human activity. But apparently, there's also been discussion about how air pollution itself is impacting on COVID-19 infection. And Kaya has been reading up a little bit about it. Yeah, so um, one of the DEA members, Associate Professor Vicky Kotsarilis, uh, wrote an opinion piece about this recently and how air pollution may potentially be affecting coronavirus fatality rates. Um which I thought was really interesting because I'd also, like you, on social media, I'd seen a lot of stuff about um, how coronavirus has been clearing up skies and there's swans in Venice and the environment is happy and singing. Um, But there's starting to sort of be a few more articles about how air pollution might also be making coronavirus worse, um, which I thought was pretty interesting and I didn't find it that surprising. Well, I haven't read anything about it, so you're going to have to tell me about it. 
I can do that. And you can wear your public health physician hat and we can together try and work out what all of it means. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so there's been a few studies. Um, I guess we can start with the dry sort of stuff, the study side of things. So one um, was for, from Yaron Ogan that was published in July this year that was looking um, at nitrogen dioxide, which is NO2 hotspots in Europe, specifically in northern Italy and Spain. Um, and they were sort of looking at COVID-19 related deaths in regions across Europe. And they found that of the 4,400 or so fatalities, that 78% were in these regions where the concentration levels of nitrogen dioxide are highest, um, which was in those in the northern of Italy and then metropolitan Madrid. Um, and so the study was sort of wondering, does increased exposure to nitrogen dioxide mean you, well, is it an important contributor to COVID-19 fatalities? Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. And then there was another study, um, which was a Harvard one based in the US by Wu et al. That was published in April this year. That was looking at particulate matter. So PM 2.5 in particular. Um, and they found that only small increments of long-term exposure to PM 2.5 um, is associated with a 15% increase in COVID-19 death rates. Um, which is basically saying if you're exposed to slightly more um, PM 2.5 over a long period of time, you potentially would have a 15% increase in chance of dying from COVID-19. Hmm. Interesting. Is how, so is, both, how I, is how I took it. That's so interesting. So both papers really have found pretty similar findings about air pollution and deaths from COVID, but um, were there any significant differences between like how the studies were carried out? Um, yeah, so I guess, first of all, they're both just demonstrating an association between air pollution and, and fatalities related to COVID. Um, so we can't say that anything is particularly cause. It's not a causation study. Um, I guess the, the Harvard study was quite good in that it accounted for a lot of different, um, sort of discrepancies or variables like it accounted for age and population density um, and sort of how far along into the pandemic it was, which the study in Europe didn't seem to do. Um, and the study in Europe was also interesting in that it defined long-term exposure to nitrogen dioxide as the two months preceding the coronavirus pandemic, um, which is sort of, I wonder whether that counts as long-term exposure in my mind I'd always thought that long-term exposure to like nitrogen dioxide and like sulfur dioxide and stuff was like years of exposure not just a couple of months which is pretty interesting mm. yeah that is really interesting I guess it'd be pretty hard to stop a longitudinal study though you never know when a pandemic is going to hit I know, shame. Um, but there's, I mean, it's interesting that we're getting quite a few of these studies. So there was one in 2003 as well during the SARS sort of outbreak. Um, there's a study by Sui Etal in China that also showed um, that SARS, which is closely related to COVID-19, um, you were 84% more likely to die if you lived in areas with high levels of pollution. Um, so it has been sort of a trend that people have been documenting but again it's all association thus far while I was listening to you talk I was thinking there's this thing I 
did last year with the medical students where I taught them how to analyze papers. And I don't know if I can include this because obviously there's lots of medical students who might listen to this, mm. so it might be useful. Um, That's a good idea. So the way that um, I did it is that you know how it's always easiest to remember things in three? Mm. So divided up into three things. So when you're trying to critically analyze a research paper, I always remember three things. The first one is what is the research problem and is the study design appropriate to answer the study problem? Mm. So like when we talk about these studies, I think it's interesting because um, if we really wanted to know what the long-term effect of air pollution is on COVID – we'd have to do a longitudinal study. Yeah. And that's not really possible because you can't predict when a pandemic's going to occur. Mm. So I guess the next best thing is to do like a really large ecological study. Mm. Or, I mean, really large cross-sectional study. Um, and the cross-sectional study can show an association, but it's like you said, you can never really prove causality. Mm. Um, so I thought that... Um, I thought the um, the study method that was used was the best method that you could use given the research problem, which is we want to know now what the effect of air pollution is on COVID. Mm. It's not something we could plan for. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's the first thing is, is the research um, problem or is the study design appropriate for the research problem? And then the second thing I think of as like all the issues with the study so I remember that's three things as well, and it's chance, um, bias, and confounding. So chance is basically is the study size large enough, mm. and the Harvard study again is millions, hundreds of millions of people. So it's definitely not a chance mm. issue in this case. Mm. And then bias is all about the measurement error. So that's kind of like how do you actually measure the air pollution and how do you measure it per person or at the um, like county level. And so I probably would want to know more about like how many air pollution monitors are in each of these different areas and mm. what's the measurement error like for that. Um, yeah, so chance, bias, and then confounding. And so I guess the big things that are confounding – are population density and age. And so those might vary across different areas and then also be associated with air pollution by something similar, but not necessarily be the cause for why there's increased fatality from COVID. Mm. Um, so I think if you were going to do any study like this, you would have to definitely adjust for those factors. And I know the Harvard study um, adjusted for quite a few different confounders. Yeah. Um, and and then the last thing is generalizability. So are the findings done on a population or is the study done on a population that you can um, apply to other areas um, or like to your population group? And I think it's interesting like that. The entire of the USA is quite a diverse population. Yeah. So <laughs> I think it's quite a generalizable study. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I guess, Kaya, the, like the biggest problem you're finding was this, we can't draw causality. And 
actually before we were to- before we were recording the podcast, you were telling me um, that one of the biggest problems with studies like this is that people are using them as like the motivation for why we should be addressing air pollution, even though there's actually a whole lot of other health outcomes that we know are definitely associated with air pollution. And this is just one and we don't really have enough evidence yet. Yeah, I guess there's a, it's interesting with these studies because I guess a lot of people want to, within Australia, take them and use it as the, like, we need to work on air pollution in Australia because of coronavirus. Um, And it's probably not true um, because there's, there's lots of different arguments in it and it's the question of do these health impacts associated with air pollution take years and years to develop and we don't really have a massive burden of coronavirus in Australia and so and possibly our air pollution isn't necessarily significant enough in the areas where we do have coronavirus hotspots and so you'd have to go back 20 or 10 years ago and fix the air pollution to see effects in Australia now which you may not even see at all um so I think there's a lot of better reasons or better arguments for cleaning up air pollution in Australia. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an interesting That's one. interesting. That's def, you know, that's definitely a topic we should talk about again, because a lot of people say, oh, air pollution isn't actually that bad in Australia. Why are people talking about cleaning it up? Mm. But um, even at really low levels of air pollution, there's an effect on health. Um, actually, so that we can promote the air pollution interest group a little bit more, I did see that they were thinking about doing journal clubs. Oh, nice. And I, I guess that's, we could talk more about these kinds of things in those journal clubs would be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That would be good. I guess an important thing to talk about for now, while we're on the topic of air pollution and, um, health is sort of one of the reasons why they think that air pollution could, um, worse than coronavirus fatalities is because nitrogen dioxide um, and other air pollutants, but we'll use nitrogen dioxide for an example, is a quick-acting respiratory irritant. It comes from a range of things. So the biggest sources is fossil fuel combustion from motor vehicle exhaust, um, which is why we can sometimes see the levels are a bit higher in cities, and then also coal-fired power stations and other industries. Oh, I have a cat sitting on top of the laptop. Go down. Hi, cat. Hi, cat. Um, um, so nitrogen, nitrogen dioxide in particular is a quick-acting respiratory irritant. Um, so it can worsen asthma and it can also worsen pre-existing lung disease like COPD. But it also has long-term effects on health, on the heart and the lungs. Um, and it's also linked to delaying children's lung development. Um so for all those reasons, it's kind of why it potentially um, could make someone with a coronavirus illness worse off or more predisposed to having a more severe form of the disease. Um, and I thought it was interesting in the European study in Italy and Spain, they were talking about um, one of the newer ways that people have found that coronavirus can kill people is sort of through um, this hyperactive immune response where they get this cytokine storm and nitrogen dioxide kind of links in with that in a way as well and that it sort of um, causes an excessive immune response in the lungs is one of the ways that it irritates the lungs. So that's quite interesting. Oh, interesting. Mm. Do you think um, – oh, you, you were saying that it comes from vehicles and coal-fired 
and um, other industries. It doesn't necessarily come from bushfire smoke. Yeah. So I was just thinking, <laughs> oh gosh, that would have been so terrible if it was like all the bushfire smoke and COVID at the same time. Yeah. So bushfire smoke tends to cause more like particulate um, matter, which is what the Harvard um, article was talking about. That's so interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, but I guess now is a great time to talk a bit more about something more specific to DEA. Um, and so for the next part of the podcast, we have a very special guest with us today. Uh, it is Dr. Beau Frigo, who is the chair of the DEA Queensland Committee um, and also a member of the National DEA Committee as well, or the board. Um, Bo, would you like to introduce yourself this evening, this morning, today? <laughs> Whatever time <laughs> you're listening. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really honored to be on the first ever DA podcast um, and happy to contribute. Amazing. Um, so, yeah, I've been a part of DA for this is my seventh year um, and I do chair the um, Queensland State Committee and sit on the national board. Um, and I'm currently a resident uh, in obstetrics and gynecology on the Gold Coast. Amazing. And the reason we have dragged you onto our podcast today is because we want to hear a bit more about the organizational review that's been going on with Thin Doctors for the Environment. So I guess my first question is, why did we decide we needed to have an organizational review? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's um, probably the most important question. I think you know, we have to kind of look back at sort of the origins of DEA to realize um, where exactly we had come from and why we needed to maybe rethink our um, strategy and our structure. I guess in essence, DEA started, you know, almost two decades ago um, with a very small, dedicated group of people who were trying to make a difference on the environmental health and human health front. Um, and so that structure was sort of based around the idea that there would be this core group of people sort of doing most of the work. Um, but as the popularity of DA has grown, it's expanded to, you know, more than a thousand members. Um, and so it sort of forced the organization to have a rethink about, you know, is the structure that we have set up allow us to perform at our optimum capacity? Um, and are people being utilized in the best way? And how do we start to engage um, members who are less familiar with the organization into the work that we want to do. Um, and the best way to do that would be to actually take a pause and to take a real sort of critical think about what our goals were as an organization and how we best, um, I guess, set ourselves up to achieve those. Um, and so we've kind of uh, decided that now is the best time to do it as things are rapidly changing and um, climate change is more prominent of, it, of an issue than it ever has been. Uh, and that kind of led into the organizational review, which we started over a year ago. Yeah, I, th that all, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I know there are a lot of people that felt that it was a really good time for an organizational review to occur, especially people that had sort of worked in different volunteer groups before. Groups are run so differently um, between them, but... I think it, it definitely felt like DEA could have a bit of a makeover as well and freshen up some of the structures that are within it. Um, what did the organizational review actually involve? Like what, what does it take to do a review? Yeah, so I mean, it, it was uh, certainly a learning curve for us as a board because we 
had never really undergone a process like this before. Um, and so we knew we needed outside help. So we did hire um, a consultant who essentially took us through the process of doing um, an internal review um, to try and figure out what exactly we needed to, to work on and build on. And so essentially that um, external consultant uh, interviewed a lot of our current members and peoples on the board, as well as some relevant stakeholders like um, heads of other organizations, people in the media, um, politicians, other government workers, to get a sense of what was sort of the current impression of what DA was currently like, how we functioned and the effectiveness of our group. Um, and then there was a survey which was sent out to all of our members so that we could try and get as much of a collective input from them as we could. Um, and then we also did a workshop with the management committee to sort of work through a lot of the commonalities that came out of the survey and the interviews with stakeholders just to get a clearer sense of what the overall impression really was of how DAA was functioning and, and what people thought um, our direction needed to be. Mm. That's extremely thorough. Um, so what, what did it find at the end of all this? Yeah, so I mean, it, it highlighted a few positives and obviously some areas for improvement. So in terms of, you know, what DAA does well, um, it was the sort of the obvious things that we expected. So our scientific rigor, um, the way that we are a very academically focused organization, that it is comprised of all medical professionals were all considered highlights. It gave us sort of a, an a accelerated reputation um, and an ability to have access to meetings and people that maybe other organizations don't have the ability to because of their makeup of their members. Um, and so that was considered a strength. Um, what most people thought we could improve on was our ability to work flexibly and collaboratively with other organizations working in the same space. Um, and a lot of our members were wanting us to do more direct advocacy and mm -hmm. grassroots campaign work um, that sort of allowed uh, general members to be a lot more active and engaged in the organization as opposed to so much of the work being done sort of by a select few people at the top. Mm -hmm. um, and so really, we, we sort of posed three different options to the membership around where DA would go. Um, one of it being sort of sticking to our similar structure and reinforcing the way that we do things now, um, completely switching to a more campaign driven type organization, or the third option being sort of trying to highlight the best aspects of both of those things and taking them on concurrently, knowing the, how resource intensive that type of, um, trajectory would be. Mm. Um, and the majority of people wanted option three. They wanted us to sort of maintain <laughs> our ability. I know. Do the um, one. <laughs> classic doctors to, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> choose to overachieve. Um, but essentially that was the, that was the consensus was that they wanted us to, you know, still maintain our scientific rigor to still maintain our ability to, um, produce quality um, resources and participate uh, in quality submissions and things like that, um, but did want the flexibility for people to do more direct campaigning and to be more on the ground, meeting with communities, um, meeting with local politicians and, and health organizations and things like that, um, and wanted to sort of build up our, our campaigning ability. Mm. Awesome. I guess it makes sense because DEA, I think, has done really well at attracting a big younger group of members as well, like medical students and junior doctors, who are a lot of people that 
have experience with other um, like NGOs or groups, whether it's like Get Up or Fossil Free Unis or like 350.org um, and that they're very sort of groundswell like groups the way that they work um, and it gets mm. everybody really involved no matter what level you are. And then I think a lot of people just expect that all organizations work in a similar way. And so when people are joining DEA, DEA wasn't necessarily structured previously to sort of take in all of those people and give everyone a job and make everyone feel like they're a really important contributor to the movement. Um, So I'm really excited to see where it will go, but it also is a mammoth undertaking. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a smart direction for the organization to go in. I think, um, it helps build sort of the functional capacity of all of your members. That way everybody can kind of contribute as they see fit, um, while also leaving the flexibility for DEA to focus their energy into any particular strategy that they deem fit for any particular issue. It doesn't kind of pigeonhole us into one way of doing work, um, which I think will be beneficial for the organization long term. Um, and it's, and it's listening to what the members want. I think we needed to ensure that people felt like their money and their time was being put to good use. Um, and so to ensure that you need to ensure that they have input into what the organization is doing moving forward. So I think, um, that bit was quite clear to us in the way that the feedback was received. Mm. Awesome. Um, is there anything else you would like to add? What can we, what can we look forward to within DEA? Yeah, so I think because of that feedback, it's really given us some clear direction in terms of how we want to modify the things that we do. Um, we have the benefit of having a really um, proactive and engaged executive director, Denise, um, who has a lot of experience in terms of organizational change um, and has been really instrumental in kind of taking that feedback from our membership and turning that into really actionable things moving forward. So. Um, what people might have seen in some of the recent newsletters is some slight changes to our structure. So taking more of the day-to-day operational work of DAA out of the hands of the board and the management committee um, and putting it into our sort of executive officers like Denise and our office manager um, and our um, our media person so that because um, they're our paid employees, so they have the capacity to spend more of their day doing that kind of stuff, whereas as working doctors, it's a lot harder for our volunteer members to do a lot of that stuff during the day, um, but then allows um, that group of people more ability to focus on um, what they're interested in. So if there are people who do sit on the board or the management committee, that they're able to um, think bigger picture and talk more about sort of the overall direction of the organization. And then if there are some people who want to focus more on either fundraising or campaigning or writing submissions or whatever it is that people have the capacity to do that. Um, and so this is sort of the first time ever that we've created a structure that allows for that. So we have a fundraising committee, we have a campaigns committee, we have um, like an education committee that focuses more on the special interest groups. Um, so those people who have a specific interest in either, you know, coal or gas or biodiversity or hospital sustainability, they can kind of opt into their interest group and focus more on, you know, the latest campaigns and work that involve that particular area of interest. Um, And then working with the campaigns committee can sort of establish um, 
either top down or bottom up campaigns that our members can contribute to as they see fit. So hopefully with that sense of collaboration between the different areas of the organization, we can start to build our functional capacity. So with the available funds that the fundraising committee starts to bring for us with the structure of campaigns, with the expert opinions of our scientific group and all that stuff, it's hopefully going to create our our ability to um, utilize as many people as possible um, to act on all of the things that we think are important as an organization and support everyone in being involved in something that they're passionate about. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately what we think we need to do to keep this organization going and allow it to expand um, in a way that's sustainable. Yeah. Awesome. I'm excited. This is so exciting. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think I think it's good. I think, um, you know, with every organization, you have to kind of modify yourself with where your organization is at at a given time. And I think we just realized that DA was um, almost becoming too big for its britches is another way to say it. And so we needed to sort of rethink the way that we did our work that allowed us to kind of capitalize on that. Um, And I think, you know, I think this organizational review has really allowed us to do that. Um, And so I'm excited to see where we go next with everything. And I hope everybody else kind of latches onto that and, and opts into things that they're passionate about and, and gets involved because it's when we have involved members that we do our best work. Absolutely. Well, I think that is a great point to end on for this first episode of the DEA podcast. Um, I hope everyone has enjoyed listening and we'll be back at the next podcast to talk more about planetary health um, and hopefully have another great interview. Thanks, guys. Bye. Sounds great. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, That was our first podcast. Really enjoyed hearing everything that's been going on with DEA. You may be wondering how you can get more involved as well. Um, The best things to do are to email your state rep and read the next newsletter. It'll have plenty of information about things that you can get active in. And stay tuned for next time. So first we're going to play a little game so that you can get to know us. It is the word association game. So I'll say an environmental problem and then Karen is going to name the solution as quickly as she can. Are you ready, Karen? Yes, I think so. (laughs) Okay, first one, pollution from transport. Oh, lonesome tube, people across the planet. (laughs) Perfect. A plus answer. Okay, you'll go. Um, urban heat island. Um, helicopter, helicopter water across the city and sprinkle it down on people. That doesn't sound very sustainable. <laughs> Neither did Lampson's. Imagine the electricity you need to sustain that transcontinentally. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, what about acidification? Um, of oceans? Because, you know, I was actually literally today. whatever you like. About how to acidify soil to grow blueberries. 
So maybe we could just extract some of the acid from the ocean and grow more blueberries. That sounds lovely. How do you acidify soil for blueberries, usually? Uh, sulfur. Oh, classic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is strong content. (laughs) 